welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by Molly McGrath for a conversation on Kurosawa's Rashomon. Molly, thank you for joining me. It was a thrill for me to read your essay on Kurosawa's Rashomon. It's astute, it pays attention to details, and it has such a nice way of bringing things together. It has sent me thinking more than once, and I'm happy that by the accident that we both write for Law and Liberty, I was able to get in touch with you, and we can now do a podcast, if not more in future, on Kurosawa. But first of all, of course, please introduce yourself for our audience. Yes, thank you for having me. My name is Molly McGrath. I teach philosophy at Assumption College, and I also run the honors program there. And I also occasionally write a movie review for Law and Liberty. I fully recommend them. After reading that one, I've been following your essays with quite some attention. And there's more than one movie I went to see just to see how I think about it in relation to how you think about it. And as a moviegoer, it's a delight to be able to share in somebody else's thoughts and to discover things in this way. So I hope that we will be able to shed some light on Rashomon, which was a very famous movie. It came out in 1950. It was one of the early times Kurosawa was nominated for an Oscar. And it was one of the early masterpieces of Kurosawa, who has got to be the most famous Japanese director in perpetuity. A man who meant to Japan more or less what John Ford meant to American movies, if not even more since the Western, although it was the national myth and the source of TV in the 50s and a very important genre for a long time, was not quite as important since in Japan they had to reconstruct their ideas about justice almost, given the catastrophe of World War II from beginning to end, being that Japan was an aggressor, not merely a participant in the war, and defeated, and then the whole political system changed. So that's the political context in which Kurosawa's work should be understood, and we can talk about this at length in another time, say, if we talk about Seven Samurai. Now, about Rashomon, please first lead us through the plot, and after the overview, we'll try to explain why this is such a beautiful and at the same time insightful movie. Yes, it is truly one of my favorite movies. It's very difficult what you've asked me to do to summarize the plot. It's bizarrely structured and it's a very complicated plot. It starts with an opening scene in which two men and then they're joined by a third are sheltering themselves in this enormous gate, the Rashomon Gate. The southernmost gate leading into the city of Kyoto, which would have been the imperial capital, it's set in the 11th century, and this is a period of decline, and this terrible rain is falling down, and the men are lamenting how awful things are. They talk about earthquakes and famines and plagues, but then they say, this is worse than anything they've seen before. And what's the this? That leads us into what seems to be the plot of the movie, which is a rape and a murder that's happened out in the forest right outside the city. And we hear about the rape and the murder because there are two people who were there at the trial who are also there at the gate. So the three figures at the gate are the commoner who shows up later. He's very cynical, the woodcutter and the priest. And the woodcutter and the priest had some kind of testimony at the trial. They saw something relevant to the rape and the murder. And so they're asked to testify at the trial. And so they recount to the commoner what happened. And this happens in a series of stories. First, the woodcutter says what he saw, which was basically that he found the body. Then the priest uh, talks about just seeing the couple, the samurai and his wife, in the forest before the murder. And then we see at the trial, the bandit tells his story. 
So the actual rape and the murder are recounted in the following three stories, the bandits, the wives, and the dead husbands. And we see their stories, and the main point is that they're all different. This is one of the reasons why there's a psychological phenomenon named after the movie Rashomon. Uh, the Rashomon effect happens when multiple witnesses give sincere testimony of a single event, say a car crash or something, and all the testimony is different. And so it's really hard for us as viewers of the movie to tell what happened in the forest. It makes the film seem at least like a detective story. And lots of people think of it as a detective story. Uh, you're trying to put together clues and figure out who's lying and who's telling the truth. The commoner listens to all these stories and basically says everyone's a liar, everything is baloney, and there's no truth. So I think it would be best to go through the accounts and think about them for the benefit of our audience, try to give a sense of both the accumulating strength of the story unfolding and the power of various details to shed light on the problems that Rashomon is dealing with and it's hard of course to do this because it's very hard to keep the whole in mind while mm -hmm. pulling at this or that thread in what is as you said a rather complex weaving it's fully understandable why people think it's a movie about cynicism or relativism or pessimism about the possibility of truth-telling and justice for human beings Partly, of course, it's our experience that it's really, really hard to tell the truth and to have justice. But partly it's that people don't pay enough attention to the story. Rashomon is not simply life as somebody experiences it who's cynical or very sophisticated. It's a story crafted by a small number of people who were directed by Akira Kurosawa. It is perfectly possible that he got a better idea and he worked it out better than say many other people including many people who love the film and misunderstand it can themselves have the purpose of course of having these conversations is to try to follow kurosawa's guidance and to figure out what he is trying to say from the way in which he says it as you pointed out we start in a world that we quickly learn is in between two different places the court of law and the forest we started this gate, which is a gate to the city or out of the city, and is therefore an ambiguous place, and which is also in disrepair, testifying to the disrepair of the times. It is a time of crisis, and far from inviting you into the city, this gate seems to be a ruin already, and to portend ruination. And here we see these two men who we learn are witnesses in a criminal lawsuit, one a priest, one a simple woodcutter from the area, who are lamenting this one case of murder and rape worse than all the catastrophes, natural and political, of a time full of catastrophes, apparently. And so you begin to pay attention. What could be worse than all these horrifying things? Why would a story where these people disagree on the details of uh, these two crimes, rape and murder, count against far bigger, far more urgent and far scarier events? That's the first thing that attracts attention at a higher level than storytelling usually achieves. This is not merely a journalistic account. This is apparently going to involve the question of what is most fearful or in what way the miscarriage of justice is the most terrible thing there is. This leads us to the lawsuit. We know that violence happened, and it happened somewhere out of the city, in a forest, in a natural setting. 
and we know that the priest saw the samurai traveling with his wife before violence took place and that the woodcutter saw the dead samurai at the end and reported it to the authorities after violence happened. The act of violence itself, which is the subject of the criminal lawsuit, is shrouded in mystery. There are two witnesses, there's Tajomaru, the thief, brigand, murderer, and there is the wife of the samurai, who both appear in the lawsuit. But are they reliable? They tell different stories. Now, yes. you would naturally assume the woman is likelier to tell the truth, since the other guy is an admitted criminal and murderer. But it turns out to be not so simple. This is a crime we only see in relation to the stories that people tell, and people tell different stories, and why they tell those different stories really matters. And so let's try and work our way through the three stories told at the trial. We know in advance that this is a terrifying thing that justice miscarried. The courts of law fully intended to do justice. The woodcutter did his part for justice and reported seeing the dead samurai and led the authorities to it. The police did their part and they captured Tajomaru and brought him to justice. And they also found the samurai's wife who had run to a Buddhist temple. And the law is now doing its part in terms of investigation and punishment in a court. So far, so good. Everything seems to be working out, except that the result is apparently shocking to people at the trial, the woodcutter and the priest. So let's see how we ended up with all these good intentions and everybody doing their part. We ended up nevertheless with a catastrophe. So first of all, what does Tajomaru say about what he did? Mm -hmm. Well, let me say why I think the men think this is more terrifying than, say, plagues and famines. Because what happens at the trial with these three stories being told reveals the structure of the human soul. And if that is the whole picture of the human soul, then we really have no chance to face those other kinds of tragedies like famines and plagues. So the first eyewitness testimony given is the bandits. Tajamaru is his name, played by this fantastic actor, Tajiro Mufune. He tells the story that he's lying there and he looks very much like an animal. And he likes to scratch himself and he's sweating. He's in the forest and he sees this woman pass on a horse. The horse is being led by her samurai husband. And he just gets this glimpse of her face and her ankles, basically, and animal emotions erupt. He decides he's going to rape her and that involves tricking her husband. So he runs up to the husband and says that he found some kind of stash of old treasures and that he would split it with the husband. And the husband's greed, therefore, is what drives him to do something imprudent, which is to trust this awful looking guy in the forest and leave his wife alone in the forest. And the promise is for this treasure, according to Tajumaru, is swords and mirrors. And I find that kind of interesting. I think one of the things that's going on is in the movie, it's made clear to us that we have to choose between mirrors, knowing ourselves honestly, and swords. There's something about the structure of human life pulled there. So the husband takes him up on his offer. Tajimaru tricks him to walk up the mountain where he basically gets mugged and tied up. And then he goes and gets the wife and brings the wife up to where the husband is tied up so that he can rape her in front of her husband. According to Tajumaru's story, she gives in. She can't resist his thuggish charm. You know, he's a real man. He's kind of a Don Juan of a bandit. So it's not really a rape in Tajumaru's story. What happens next is that they're going to run away together, except that the wife insists that they battle it out. It is too shameful for her to be known by two men. So one of them has to die and she'll go with the winner. They have a fantastic sword fight. They uh, touch swords 23 times, he brags. It's a very noble fight, an honorable fight. And in the meantime, the wife has run away. The husband is now dead and Tajumaro leaves and is later caught. 
So that's the first telling of the story. Following that, we get the wife's testimony. She is very sympathetic. She's sobbing. She's sad. She looks very weep. She's really doing her best to get the pity of the court, which isn't difficult. After all, her husband was just murdered and she was raped. According to her story, everything kind of happened at first in the same way as the Bandit story, except that she did not consent and that the bandit then runs off after the rape. The wife happens to have a dagger with her, and she unsuccessfully defended herself against the bandit with it. Her husband, the samurai, is tied up and looks at her with this awful glare, this unforgiving glare. She is now tainted goods, and he just kind of stares and stares, and there's this wonderful scene. She just goes progressively mad in about 30 seconds, and then she says to the court that she must have fainted, and she woke up, and the dagger was in her husband's chest. So now we have the bandit who's taken credit for the murder and the wife who is taking credit for the murder. And both of them have done so in a way that fulfills the societal expectations for them. The bandit is very proud. He's a great bandit. He's a good fighter. As I said, Don Juan, the wife takes on the role of a passive victim, even in killing her husband. She has some kind of agency there, but she does it almost unconsciously. So she's doing her best to save some face after this tragedy. Then we hear the husband's story, and I know the husband's supposed to be dead, right? So how do we hear his story? It's told through a shaman, a medium, and uh, we hear the husband's voice come out of the woman shaman's mouth. It's quite jarring. It's an incredible scene. And according to the husband, after the consensual sex, the wife wants to leave with the bandit because she's bored with her samurai husband. And the wife says to the bandit that she will leave, but then demands that the bandit kill her husband because she doesn't want to be known by two men. The bandit, disgusted, says nope and runs off. And now the wife is there and her husband knows he was just betrayed by her, not just sexually, but also that he was going to die at her boyfriend's hands. She runs off and he kills himself. And again, this is also fulfilling societal expectations. This is the honorable way for the samurai to end his life, given what's just happened to him. So that's the eyewitness testimony we have, in which each of the three witnesses takes credit for the murder. Yeah. In these three consecutive accounts, we see a certain development of, as you put it, very astute remark. Every character giving testimony there talks to the court not as an individual human being, but as a social class, a representative of that class, and therefore in some sense excused in being known to be of the kind of that class. Everybody is hiding behind a certain public expectation of who they were. And this is one reason, perhaps even stronger than the fact that the stories differ, to doubt the veracity of each of the three witnesses to the crime. And what's more, there is reason to believe that they are all shown at their worst, but that they are all needful parties to society if things could be arranged otherwise, if this were not a time of crisis when the very possibility of human beings living together peacefully is jeopardized. Now, what starts with Tajomaru, as you well put it, is somebody steps up and says, might makes right. I killed the guy, we fought as men, I took his wife. That's what men do. She liked it, she knows what men do. Yeah, you know, you're gonna kill me for it, like I killed that guy for what I wanted, but that's all there is to it. There is no justice, there is only might. And there is reason to say at first, why would Tajomaru lie since he knows he's going to die and he's kind of cheerful about it? Well, it turns out that there is a certain story that Tajomaru has to believe in order to die cheerfully. 
the story of might makes right only makes sense if you have a kind of romantic adventuring view of life. They fought like devils, the woman loved him for his strength, he proved himself and was recognized for it. He has to have had the ability to live the good life as he sees it for him to be able to reconcile himself to his inevitable death in the court of law. But aside from the way that his own personality requires a certain story, there is also the challenge he presents to the court. Might makes right. The court can kill somebody, but it cannot persuade anybody that that is done with right. It is only done with might. When Tajomaru could, he killed. When the court can, they kill. And that would seem to reduce human beings to something comparable to the scenes we see told in story in the forest. Whoever can does even outrages, and whoever cannot do anything suffers whatever they must. That's a very bleak outlook on life, but it gathers plausibility in all times of crisis, we suspect. Whenever the civil peace breaks down, all of a sudden we see things that horrify, and the court seems to get in over its head. It's not just Ajomaru, we have it on the authority of the priest and the woodcutter who are not involved in violence themselves except as spectators after or before the fact. And they too believe that the court reveals something that it could not properly deal with or resolve. Wanting to do justice to the dead samurai forces the court to find out the truth about what happened to him, but that truth may itself destroy the possibility of justice on which the court bases its claims to power. And this is what shows up in the first story. Yes, I think that there's a connection in the film between the very cynical skepticism that we are tempted to by the conflicting accounts and the might-makes-right view of the world, which is a moral nihilism, in which case, as you say, the court's attempt at justice becomes nonsense or at best another animal activity, just more killing unless you can justify it according to a standard of morality. And that's threatened by the epistemological skepticism that there is no such thing as truth. And so I think what the movie does there in that central frame where there are three different accounts and it creates this mystery and you think we can't possibly know the truth, I think is what tempts us into a relativism about not just right and wrong or like what kind of yogurt you like or something like that, but a relativism about actually what exists and what's true. So the most popular interpretation of the film is as a relativist film. It's basically asserting the non-existence of reality. It's an expose and reality's failure to exist. The most important commentator on the film is this guy named Donald Ritchie, and he's kind of Mr. Rashomon in some ways. And he says, well, there seems to be a mystery in the forest, but really there is no mystery. All the accounts are consistent once the viewer realizes that everyone has their own reality, that there is no objective reality, and that's the point of the film. He represents the vast majority of intellectuals in their view of what this film is doing. I think Richie is falling into a temptation which Kurosawa knows is there towards a relativism, but without allowing the film to speak about relativism, he just thinks it's asserting relativism. And in fact, what the movie is doing is trying to show us the connection between that kind of relativism, throwing up your hands at the possibility of knowing anything at all, of uh, knowing a common world together connecting that to the impossibility of living in a common world together and the reduction of, as you said, right to might, the reduction of all justice to mere power plays, so that the epistemological relativism leads directly to a moral nihilism. Yeah, and you're right that Kurosawa wants to describe very accurately how this temptation emerges and why it's such a problem. 
And so after the he says of Tajomaru comes the she says of the samurai's wife. They are the only people left alive of this moment of violence, of this atrocity. And you would expect the second testimony to reestablish justice by truth-telling. The woman is going to tell the truth about what happened. Everybody is going to realize it. We can work things out that way. Happily, there is a witness. She is a victim, respectable woman. Her husband was murdered. It's going to be at least found out in a court of law. Nobody can bring the dead husband to life. But honor can be done to him in justice, in death, and also to the woman. But there are problems there. First of all, the woman didn't go to the authorities at any point. She ran away to a temple. Then her testimony suggests that her husband was not a good guy after all. He was a victim of Tajomaru, but he was also a very bad man. Seeing his wife outraged led him to treat her as if she didn't even exist, as though the insult she and he suffered called forth a kind of infinite retaliation. He's not simply outraged at Tajomaru or looking for revenge. Everything surrounding that moment of violence and his own defeat is supposed to be annihilated. He thinks she is as contemptible as the crime itself. And that shows one reason why it's so hard to do justice. The victims of injustice can end up looking tainted because of our notions of respectability and the way respectability turns our sense of shame into this channel. The husband, who knows his wife was outraged, is nevertheless going to hold her accountable for it. That would seem to come out of a certain desire to avoid one's own vulnerability or powerlessness. There is nothing the husband can do to Tajomaru, much less to go back in time and prevent the outrage from happening. But he can pretend in a certain sense that it is all and nothing, that his wife is no longer his wife, that their marriage is no longer a marriage, that everything that tied him to her is dead. And the wife reacts to this because she understands what her husband is doing and so she kills him. It is nothingness that he wants, but he blames her for his problems. Here we see where respectability and innocence stand to one another. From the point of view of the first story, human beings are just like any other animal in the forest. From the point of view of Tajomaru, strong men take the women of weak men and that's all there is to it. Something like the law surrounding marriage, which gives authority to jealousy and to shame, for example, and sets boundaries to conduct, that doesn't exist in the forest. From the point of view of Tajomaru, he only acted naturally, like any other animal would. If anybody is crazy, it's the court of law that is crazy, that goes around killing people for being natural. In the second story, we see something else. It's not that the court of law and all the laws, for example, the laws around marriage and the laws that protect us from criminals, it's not that they're all vindicated or reinforced. It's that the marriage implodes internally rather than externally. It is the husband turning against the wife that causes her in return to kill him. There is some vulnerability within the institutions of the laws of our way of life, the things we believe in, to go on with life. They themselves are vulnerable and in a moment of crisis we can turn to each other as enemies like the husband and wife do in this story. And her refuge in the Buddhist temple I think is symptomatic of that. She's trying to run away from the world on the understanding that whatever she must have believed about civil society, to have lived and got married and traveled and so forth, is now at an end. 
she doesn't believe justice can be done either. She doesn't take the opinion of Tajomaru that might makes right, but she has learned that whatever strength there may be in the institutions of civil society, not even marriage can resist a crisis. And it is this transformation of friends into enemies that the second story is centrally about, I think. The woman can only react to her own violence by saying, well, she blacked out, she was insane, she didn't know what she was doing. That is the limit of human consciousness. And this would seem to vindicate Tajomaru because he can murder with his eyes open. He doesn't pretend he doesn't know what he was doing thinks he can face up to something that decent civilized people like the woman he rapes, they can't. This is why a third testimony is called for, I think. The wife's testimony should have vindicated respectability, social class, the institutions by which we live, and should have led to summary doing of justice by execution to Tajomaru, and all would have been well that could still have been well after the samurai died. But the second story indeed strengthens the case of the relativist by showing the marriage implode from within and showing a sense of shame and the issue of respectability tear this marriage apart. Yes, I think that's right. The institution itself of marriage, which is one of the things of the city, is incapable of completely getting over certain natural forces. And the forces there are not only the power of the bandit, but also the shame and self-blame that victims of sexual assault feel, right? So that you see that in the wife as she goes crazy in front of her husband's eyes. And also the way that victims themselves can be blamed for being victims, because what that does is it destroys our vision, the way things are, the way we think, think they should be, it is right there for us. You know, that once his wife is raped, he can no longer be the human being, and she can no longer be the human being that he believes that they're supposed to be. And so anger is very, uh, if she symbolizes that, anger is directed towards her by him. So there's a failure of an institution of the city there, and it's driven by a certain force of the jungle. Yes, and this naturally leads to the strangest part of the movie. The medium, who is an old, weird-looking woman, giving testimony on behalf of the dead husband. This comes naturally out of our taking seriously what happens at this trial. You see what the brazen murderer is saying? You hope and believe that the woman's testimony must clear everything up and set things right. And what the woman lacks by way of strength to right wrong, that the court will provide. If but she tell a truth that is compatible with our expectations. But instead of making things better, her testimony makes things worse. So we, we hope desperately, if only the only other witness to the crime could speak. If only the dead could speak, then we would have justice, surely then, because all the victims in this world want to be revenged, want to get justice for the injustice they have suffered. If there is anybody who wants to right wrongs, it's surely those who have suffered them, and above all, the dead. So we get the testimony of the dead samurai, but this again, instead of making things better, it makes them worse. You could say... Well, the savage is a savage, and the woman, well, she was weak. On her own account, she went mad. But surely the samurai, there is a man of honor, there is a serious man, and even if defeated, he cannot have been morally destroyed. 
It is one thing to lose a fight, it is another thing to lose your human dignity. Surely he will want to have that human dignity restored officially, publicly, in a court of justice with the authority of the city on his behalf. And nevertheless, this fails to happen. The husband's story leads to his own death by suicide because he could not countenance the betrayal of his wife. And we see here that both Tajomaru and the samurai are agreed on the fact that the wife consented to rape. And this would seem to fulfill the distinction between men and women as observed in Japanese society. We see also that Tajomaru and the husband to some extent are agreed on the fact that they fought honorably or that this is what men do. So again, instead of getting the facts of the case, so to speak, we get the social expectations, the conventions of Japan. This is how men behave, this is how women behave, and this is the story we are told. And again, the fact that we have recourse to conventions as opposed to being told the truth makes it impossible to carry out justice. And here we begin to see why the woodcutter and the priest are so perplexed and terrified and why they think a simple miscarriage of justice in this one particular case could be something more horrifying than all the political and natural catastrophes of this world. If an earthquake happens, you don't have to lose your faith in human dignity. If a war happens, you could still believe that being human is good and special. But of course, sometimes bad things happen. There are bad people in the world. That doesn't mean there are no good people, that there are no good cities or countries. But if this should happen, that not even the dead can get justice for themselves not even then is justice possible, then it would seem like the entire basis of civil society or of politics or of justice and morality is shattered. So again, it, it is not hard to see why people inclined to cynicism or relativism would take this as great evidence for a point of view that they already have embraced and indeed a more beautiful confirmation since it is done in the stages of paroxysm that come to a heading when even the dead abandon justice. So one of the things thereafter in the court supposed to be a convention in order to serve something that's not merely conventional, which is justice. And the appeal to the samurai's testimony is supposed to enable them to do that. But it's exactly his conformity to convention in his own tale that prevents the convention in the city from reaching its fulfillment in justice because he can't be a samurai and be the one who was beaten in a first fight by the bandit, then have his wife raped in front of him, or have her betray him consensually, and then again be killed by either a woman, according to her story, or according to a bandit. He's supposed to be a symbol of nobility and strength, and yet all he can do in the end is kill himself. The very conventions of nobility in that society prevent the conventions to reach real nobility, which would be justice. Yeah, and this brings up the question of honor, which has been developing throughout the story. The savage has a sense of honor in accordance with nature. Man may be merely another savage beast among savage beasts, but that does not deny man his powers. And in fact, the full fruition of those powers in Tajomaru himself, from his point of view, is honorable. He is proud of the way he has lived. Now, in the case of the woman, honor looks different, but she too upholds a sense of honor. And now with her husband, the samurai, we come to the high pitch of honor as Japan understands it. And it self-destructs. 
the samurai could have given testimony in court if he had not committed suicide, which is what the dead samurai says through the medium. There's a contradiction there. But of course, he was supposed to commit suicide for the sake of honor. That is itself an assertion of human dignity, the opinion that there is a fate worse than death, that some forms of life are not worth living, that it is better to die with dignity than live without it. That is a strange but genuine assertion of human dignity. And nevertheless, it fails to do justice. That is a very serious admission on the part of Kurosawa that the life of honor is not simply conducive to justice and that it is not capable by itself to answer to the crisis of justice that this story brings up. Of course, that corresponds to our practice. It's not just, say, the history of Japan. There was a certain sense of honor that guided Japanese aggression in the lead-up to World War II. The Japanese prided themselves on honor in a way none of the other combatants did, which may have something to do with the horrifying rates of attrition. Now, aside from that, samurai, of course, and then that tradition in Japanese society is tied up with honor in an extricable way that culminates in the act of voluntary suicide, which we also know, say, from Roman aristocrats who also believed that there is a fate worse than death. And therefore, in some cases, a man should be willing to commit suicide rather than live with indignity. Nevertheless, we know from history that decent, honorable societies self-destruct. Some commentators have interpreted the film as a post-World War II Japanese reflection on the war. And I don't think that's at all exhaustive of the film, but I do think that there's something to that. And you can see, well, what's, what happened here? Were we uh, pure victims? What happened to our sense of nobility here was the fault of this samurai heritage, the way we think of that, or is the fault that we were acting like bandits? And I think one of the things that the movie can do, if it's interpreted that way, is it comes to a kind of conclusion of like that the blame game might not be the way to do the reflection after the war. Instead, they have to do something more creative, which is what the movie then moves to. Given the failure of us to come to a definitive conclusion in the court of law about whether it was rape or consensual and who murdered the samurai, the movie then moves on to other material, which I think gives us a more positive vision of human life. And so we go out of the courtroom and back to the scene with the priest and woodcutter thinking about their experience in the courtroom and telling the commoner there what they witnessed and why they are so puzzled about it. And this fifth sequence in the movie is supposed to be the way to think through when once you have realized just how bad the crisis of justice is, what there might be that you can do and understand in order to ground justice as something different than a delusion or might makes right. Yes, they move on to another telling of the story by the woodcutter. The commoner sniffs out. The woodcutter knows more than he admitted to during the trial. And the woodcutter gives the excuse that he just doesn't want to get involved. Why didn't he tell the court more? He doesn't want to get involved. So we're prone to like the woodcutter. He seems shy, otherwise like a good guy. But we now know that he also has a serious problem with courage. So the woodcutter tells another story in which he actually showed up before the murder and hid on the corner of the forested area, you know, watching in the clearing where the murder actually occurs. So he shows up, according to the second telling, right after the rape has occurred. The wife is sobbing uncontrollably. Tajimaru has fallen in love with her and is begging her 
Mifune looks so cute and childlike even. He's fallen in love with this woman who's promising her a wonderful life, and she tears off the mask of convention, basically saying, as a woman, I'm required to act certain ways. I can't make a decision here. You guys never allow me to make a decision. Why don't you guys be men? You fight it out, and I'll go with the winner. The men are humiliated by her. She just lays into their lack of masculinity, forcing them to fight. And when they do start fighting, it is a totally miserable fight. It's the Keystone Cops version of a samurai fight. They touch swords once, and then they otherwise just fall all over the place for about a 10-minute sequence before the samurai loses his sword in a tree trunk and just kind of squirms around until finally Tajimaru, shaking with fear, kills him. And so according to the woodcutter's second story, that's how it went down. And the whole time we're wondering whether she was raped or whether it was consensual, who killed the samurai and with what weapon, right? Because according to the samurai, he killed himself with a dagger, which is now missing. So one of the issues here between the commoner and the woodcutter is what happened to the dagger. The commoner can tell, because he's cynical, the woodcutter stole the dagger. You get this poor guy, and he sees a very valuable dagger with a pearl inlay, and the woodcutter confesses to stealing the dagger. So that's the woodcutter's second story. I think the most remarkable thing about that is, well, two things. The first is, Aristotle tells us that human beings' character flaws get kind of projected onto other people, right? So that our character flaws are not just moral flaws, they're also epistemological weaknesses. There are things that we can't see in the world accurately because we are, say, greedy or chintzy, right? We can't see the true value of money. We can't understand human situations accurately because of those character flaws. And the woodcutter's character flaw is cowardice. He projects that onto all the other figures in the forest. All the other figures are cowardly. The supposed nobleman, the supposed Don Juan, wonderful swashbuckling bandit, they're cowards in the end. So we see the woodcutter undermining the whole possibility of strength and nobility in his second telling. And that's the second main point about the second telling of the woodcutter, is there is no nobility in that version of the story. In the three versions of the other eyewitnesses, there's nobility. It may be distorted and misplaced, but they are trying to maintain a sense of nobility and a sense of their own honor. And in the woodcutter's telling, that's all gone. Convention has been destroyed, and it's just all jungle. Yeah, this makes the ending of the story perhaps even more interesting. Up to now, we have been given stories that had a kind of tragic dignity about them. There were very serious choices made by characters that literally tied up with life and death and what makes us who we are. Consensual sex is somehow tied up with our mysterious individuality. It is not something we share with all the other sexual animals, that is to say. Now, in this other case, what the woodcutter does seems to be, in a moment of total exasperation, to try to live out in a story the opinion that there's nothing ever worth dying for, that human beings are really petty, self-deluded creatures, that there is nothing dignified about being human. And this indeed has to do with his lack of courage. As you know from Aristotle, courage is the first of the virtues because it is about self-defense and therefore the assertion of one's own dignity and can progress to assert the dignity of family, of country, of mankind as such. Lacking that is in a certain way lacking all the others too, or at least all the others involve courage at some level. In addition to that, I think the, the woodcutter has a guilty conscience because he knows he stole the dagger and he's trying to hide that from other people. But he has a guilty conscience about it. And one way to get out of a guilty conscience is to pretend like the entire world is awful. 
right? That there really is no such thing as good and bad. It really is one sense of guilt. And so I think Kurosawa is using the story to show us a connection between an excusatory moral framework in which we feel guilt and we want to get rid of it and the adoption of a moral nihilism. Yeah. So you could say that moral nihilism comes in two varieties, active and passive. You could have a noble nihilism, and that to a large extent is what Tajomaru stands for. Savage, but he's proud of being savage, and he says, look at all the things you can do when you're savage. Life is great fun. But there's also this passive form of nihilism, which doesn't say crime pays, at least if you're strong enough. It says nothing's worthwhile. And they correspond to different personality types and different situations, but they do have a certain core in common. What's important is that the woodcutter here is a substitute for the audience, as he seems to be throughout. He is the common man without great virtues, but whose expectations of society propping up his personal weakness can be disappointed and lead him into desperation. If indeed, as we have seen, more and more testimony, more and more sacred or honorable testimony leading to only a worse catastrophe for the cause of justice, then we might be tempted, as with our moral relativists or this woodcutter, to adopt the common or vulgar opinion that justice is a delusion and there isn't anything worth dying for and therefore you shouldn't bother with the truth. If there is anybody in the story that corresponds to the sophisticated critics, it's this woodcutter. Can I slightly disagree with that? I think the woodcutter represents a common human being who's torn between recognizing nobility and falling into the commoner's view. So the commoner, I think, represents more the moral nihilistic view. He just whole hog buys it and he states it. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone's a liar. Everyone's out for themselves. Life is about taking what you can. And the woodcutter seems to be us in the film, in which we have to decide whether or not we're going to go that way. Are we going to fully buy what the commoner says? Yeah, so it seems like one view, that of Tajomaru, that might makes right, is brought out of the storytelling part about the court of law to the part that is actually performed between these three characters at the Rashomon Gate. This commoner proceeds to steal the valuables from an abandoned baby they find. That is yeah, exactly what Tajomaru would do. So in about the last 10 minutes of the film, we hear a baby crying, and it turns out that someone had abandoned a baby inside the gate. The gate was enormous, right? And it's dilapidated, it's falling down. And a lot of people, Americans, watch this film and think, where the heck did the baby just come from? The gate itself had become, at this time of civilizational decay, a place where people would abandon corpses and unwanted babies. It's not as weird historically as it would be, for example, in our society. So they hear this baby, and the commoner runs over and starts taking the baby's stuff. It's wrapped in a kimono, and it has an amulet there to protect it, and the commoner wants to steal from the baby. And the woodcutter is indignant. So the woodcutter, again, is the hinge figure there. He's tempted by the commoner's view of the world, but when he sees what the commoner does, he's outraged. He's disgusted morally. And that's when the commoner confronts him and says, you're just like me. You stole that dagger. I know it. And the woodcutter, despite his attempt, you know, he, his soul seems to be torn between the more nihilistic and the more noble. He is unmasked, therefore, as being like everyone else. And the commoner runs off with the baby's stuff. Yeah, a lot of the threads in the movie come together here. As I said, the commoner is uh, another version of Tajomaru. On the level of common life, where there aren't these incredibly dramatic, almost mythical conflicts playing out, 
the view that Might makes right looks like this. Of course he'll steal from a baby because he can. What's the baby gonna do to fight back? Because the baby is defenseless or innocent, it invites violence in this view. So that's what the commoner does, but what corresponds to the moral vices of the commoner is a certain intellectual astuteness. As you pointed out, he is the one who suspects the woodcutter and who brings out the moral depravity in him as well. And this is not merely a matter of disposition. Of course, he's disposed to suspect people of depravity because he is himself depraved. It also actually takes intelligence, paying attention to the story and noticing that there's a problem in the story. Whatever happened to that dagger, which is itself, of course, worth talking about. And it would take some combination of the intellectual astuteness of the commoner and the moral indignation and willingness to act for the good of the woodcutter to make normal life bearable, perhaps even good. And this brings us to the woodcutter and his moral choice, which is one of only two moral choices performed. We see the commoner who chooses to steal from the baby and then the woodcutter who chooses to adopt the baby in his own large and already poor family. The stories that had been told in court, all of them had a certain tragic dignity. The story that the woodcutter told about the ridiculous fight is essentially comical, but it betrays a desperate view of the world. At that point, the woodcutter was willing to suggest that there's nothing worth acting for. There's no real ground of conflict, but conflict is inevitable. Men are fated to misery, to treating each other like beasts or worse, and there's nothing that you can do or that's worth doing about that. That would seem to be his idea. Now, when he is confronted with the fact of violence to the innocent, he reacts very differently. He is outraged by the commoner even though he feels powerless to stop him because he has no virtues that would allow him to be proud of himself and to stop somebody robbing a child. But morally, he knows that the child is a human being, like his own children are human beings, other than himself and nevertheless worth his sacrifice and worth his benevolence. He is the only character in the movie willing to do good things for somebody else than himself. This has a certain intellectual implication. The view that might makes right, the view of Tajomaru or the commoner, implies that there is some standard of right, that people need good things and one has a right to get good things for oneself. Whether one has the ability is somewhat more doubtful, but the strong at least can get the good things that are indeed needed by human beings. The problem with that view is that it does not acknowledge that there are other human beings as well and that their needs have the same status. If other human beings are also needy, like even the strong are, then they really do have identity of nature and it's not clear what the ground of war of all against all might be. The strong don't really need to wipe out the weak, do they? If necessity doesn't prompt them, there's no justification for it. Now, in the case of the woodcutter, he accepts that other people have claims on him, that he's supposed to do right by his own children, and he might do right by this child as well, because it could be his since nobody else claims it. It's an abandoned child, and therefore one could adopt it. And in adopting a child that is a stranger, he goes beyond what is due to himself, what is due to his wife or his own children. He goes beyond love of his own things in doing something good at some cost to himself for somebody else. So whatever the intellectual deficiencies of the woodcutter, he is morally sound.
After learning that even the woodcutter is corrupt, the priest is depressed even more than his Buddhist self would suggest. And he's even afraid that the woodcutter might want to harm the child just like the commoner had. And the woodcutter explains himself. and says, already have a large family, I'm already poor, this is not going to make anything worse. I'll take the child. The priest himself, of course, doesn't think about taking the child. It is still possible to save family, even in a society that's falling apart. As you pointed out to me, the commoner doesn't just steal things from the baby. Throughout the movie, he's busy breaking whatever left of the gate apart to burn it for heat. He's literally bringing civilization down. Yes, tears it down for his own comfort. Versus the woodcutter whose profession is to go into the forest, go into the wild, go into nature, and take from nature something that human beings can use. Yes, of course, these are artfully chosen opposites. The man who breaks down wood that has been fashioned into needful dwellings and works of art. And on the other hand, the man who brings new material out of which to fashion the things needed for human dwelling. Even though he himself is a woodcutter, he is not the architect of the gate or the ruler of the city. But he is somebody that any ruler will need. He is part of any good system of rule, both because of his occupation, which is typical of the working classes, that is to say, making nature more amenable to human dwelling by arts and sciences, and because of his moral standing as a father. He understands what it means for somebody else to need you, and for you to have obligations to that needy or vulnerable or weak being. That's the basis of a sounder society. If people were inclined to build up that gate in the city rather than to tear it down, this is one necessary thing. And so we see elements of rule corrupted by human corruption in the court of justice, and we see the honor required for ruling classes and martial virtues like that of the samurai being corrupted. But there is also an affirmation of the lowlier virtues of poorer people, of commoners, in the case of the woodcutter. There is still a ground in work and in family for a more reasonable understanding of human community or dwelling or living together. That is far more hopeful than most people seem to take the movie as being. And there is further evidence for this view. This was the part of your essay on the movie that surprised me the most since I did not know anything about the writing. So please talk a bit about the writer who inspired Kurosawa and how the movie is different from the stories it's based on. Yeah, well, let me first apologize for not knowing properly how to pronounce his name. The writer is Ryunosuke Akutagawa. He wrote two stories that are relevant here. One is called In a Grove, and the other is called Rashomon. And if you read the commentators on this, they basically say that the movie is based on In a Grove, and that all that Kurosawa takes from the other story is the title Rashomon. I read the stories. I don't think that's true. The key stuff that happens in the forest in the courtyard are from the story In a Grove. And if you think that that's the core of the movie, then you're going to think that that's all taken from that particular story. But the movie isn't really about what happens in the forest or even in the courtyard. He's trying to get us to reflect on the relationship between epistemological relativism and moral nihilism, I think. 
What Kurosawa does, in fact, is he takes the story from Minogue and he makes that the center plot element, and then he puts an outer frame. The priest, the woodcutter, and the commoner talking to each other at the Rashomon Gate itself is completely invented by Kurosawa. And in the movie, the stuff from Minogue stops right after the husband's story. So the woodcutter's second storytelling, plus the baby and the adoption of the baby, that's all Kurosawa's invention. I think what's going on, therefore, is much more about that outer frame, but the conversation itself and what we're going to take the moral implications to be of the awfulness that we see in the forest and in the courtyard. How are we going to live as a response to the fact that human beings are, as a fact, often like that? So in Akutagawa's story, Rashomon, it's not implausible to say that the movie's not based on it at all, because there are only two characters in the story, and neither of them appear in the movie. The story, it's very short, it's beautiful, it's worth reading, it's only a few pages long. It has two characters. It starts with a samurai servant. He's just been fired, and he's sitting at the Rashomon gate, depressed, knowing that he has to choose between becoming a thief and starving. He goes up to sleep in the Rashomon Gate because it's raining, and he comes across this old haggish woman who is in a room full of corpses, stealing hair from one of the corpses. And the guy who had basically just decided to become a thief is just morally outraged. And so, again, a vision of ugliness prompts this man to have some kind of sense of nobility all of a sudden. Just as in Kurosawa's film, the commoner's action towards the baby is what prompts the thieving woodcutter to respond viscerally to the evil he just saw. Back to the Kutagawa story, the samurai servant sees this woman stealing hair from the corpses, and he confronts her. She's going to make a wig to survive. This woman, the corpse, she wouldn't care if I did this. She herself lied to survive. And you don't really have a choice. You have to do what you have to do in order to survive. And the samurai servant responds, are you sure? Well, in that case, I'm justified in, and he takes all of her stuff and kicks her and runs away. And that's the end of the Kutagawa story. It clearly is about the moral upshot of believing what the haggish woman believes. If you believe what she says, which is exactly what the commoner says in the movie, you will live like that. I think what Kurosawa is doing by naming the movie Rashomon, while taking none of the plot and taking none of the characters, is he's responding to a Kutagawa story, showing a different way that we could respond to the very same facts of human life. A hopeful response rather than a nihilistic response. Yes, instead of corpses, there is a living baby, and therefore yes. our nature and the promise of a better future, innocence rather than decay. Instead of the samurai servant and the hag, you have these two characters, the commoner with his petty criminality and the woodcutter who in his pettiness nevertheless finds the shameful need to tell the truth and the courageous willingness to assume responsibility for yet another human life. What confronts us here is a basic view of necessity. Is it the case that the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must? That necessity forces everybody into violence, some by inflicting it and others by incurring it? Or is there anything in human beings that can rise above necessity and in a courageous act of asserting dignity, take responsibility for other people as though it wasn't hard enough to take care of oneself, which is what the woodcutter does? And I think you're right here, and this is what I found especially delightful in your essay. You pay attention to everything that happens in the movie, not just things you might like or might be striking. And it seems like it is a deeply rewarding 
activity in as much as it makes for such a richer understanding of the movie than is otherwise available in criticism. And uh, I hope that our audience is also persuaded to watch this movie and watch it again, to pay attention to the way it builds up and to the moral seriousness with which it orchestrates our natural emotions, our own moral responses to this horror and the way it leads to this confrontation. Are we supposed to look in horror on a nature and the necessity that make us into monsters? Or are we supposed to react with a renewed understanding of our dignity as taking responsibility for others even when things are hard on ourselves? That I think makes for a far more serious work both morally and intellectually. Yes, I agree. I think it's a wonderful film. Many people recognize it as an excellent film, but most of the interpretations, I think, get it exactly opposite to what the film actually teaches. The film is not relativistic. It's not nihilistic. If anything, it's more Augustinian, right? The difficulty of knowing oneself and of fathoming the depths of one's possible self-deceptions, you can't really get to the bottom of that. But what you can do, and the film really encourages you to do, is to be honest with oneself about oneself, to be honest with others and to take up burdens even beyond one's obligations. I think in the end, as the woodcutter walks away with the baby, the sun comes out, you know, the rain has stopped and the sun comes out. I think Kurosawa was saying that's the only hope we have. Yes, and I would say that he puts some power into saying that there is a reason for that hope. Partly, as you pointed out, many people profess to believe that really might makes right or language is power, but they don't live out that conviction, really. And -hmm. that's why we don't live in chaos and anarchy. But Kurosawa doesn't stop at that. He orchestrates this rather dangerous story about the collapse of justice in order to show something of a response to it. I say it's a dangerous story because as we see from so much criticism and people who love the movie, they agree with people who might hate the movie as saying that, yeah, it teaches you injustice. It teaches you that the only thing there is is everybody's a liar. But that's not paying attention either to Kurosawa or to his movie because Kurosawa does offer escape from the inevitable limits of each man's experience with his virtues and vices that, as you said, color the way he sees things and what he is willing to face. Kurosawa's movie itself forces us to confront several different perspectives several different human types and each one of their specific weaknesses and in doing so educates about what kind of human beings are there what is good and what is wrong in them he doesn't merely present people at their worst in the case of the woodcutter he also presents somebody at his best and therefore suggests again this possibility of self-improvement or being one's best It's not merely that he shows different perspectives and therefore shows that there is a standpoint exterior to any given subjective view, but he also suggests that this is the task of the poet, to make it bearable for people to confront the most terrifying questions of justice and to bring them to a reasonably hopeful conclusion. That is to say, a conclusion that admits how much injustice and misery there is for human beings and nevertheless points to those signs of hope that we also know to be true from experience. Yes, I agree completely. Molly, thank you so much for joining me. I have learned much from your essay and it has guided me in my thinking on how Kurosawa orchestrates the question of natural right. Is there anything except our conventions and our self-serving delusions? 
I think we're agreed that he is saying, yeah, there is if you pay enough attention. But of course, it's easy to see why people might miss it, since they themselves might be tempted to believe that might makes right. Reading your essay, I was thinking about my own Kurosawa favorite, Seven Samurai, which orchestrates the question of justice and the defense of the common people and the destruction of nobility, all the themes of Rashomon, from a very different point of view. And perhaps we should discuss that uh, when we next have an opportunity to talk. I would love that very much. Thank you so much. It has been a learning experience, and I am pleased to be able to share what I've learned with our audience. And meanwhile, all the best. You too, thank you.